Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our ongoing series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John will be in Acts chapter 12, looking at the rescue of Peter and the death of Herod. We do invite you to take a look at our YouTube page. You can find a link to it in the show notes, where we are right now going through a series on the book of Revelation, and we are also posting regular psalm chanting videos as well. With that, we really hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts chapter 12. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Brian Motes, who's in the background recording and will be editing and smoothing out the podcast uh, for the audience. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, and uh, we're approaching the halfway point in Acts. We'll be talking about Acts chapter 12 today. Uh, we've uh, looked at, obviously, the first 11 chapters, but uh, the last couple of chapters have been focused on the ministry of Peter. Paul was introduced back in chapter 9, and then we have a couple of chapters where Peter is the main character. Uh, and chapter 12 is, a, is the end of that section. From chapters 10 to 12, Peter reemerges and then becomes uh, the principal, uh, principal character for three chapters, and then he kind of moves out of the picture. And Paul takes over from chapter 13 on, is, uh, although Peter makes, makes an appearance, he's not as central. We have a, a move from a Petrine to a Pauline phase of the apostolic era. And this chapter in particular, chapter 12, highlights one of the themes we've looked at throughout our studies in Acts, which is the, the way that the spirit of Jesus comes to conform and shape the lives of the apostles to the life of Jesus. It's not simply that their characters are formed to be like the character of Jesus, or they produce, they're producing the, the virtues of Jesus or the fruit of the spirit that Jesus had. Uh, their life stories resemble the life story of Jesus. We saw that with Stephen. Uh, Stephen's ministry in Jerusalem was much like Jesus, wearing signs and wonders and was involved in various conflicts with opposing Jews. His um, trial resembled Jesus. His death resembles Jesus in his words. And from beginning to end of the account of Stephen, we have this uh, resemblance between Jesus and uh, his disciple. And the same thing is happening with Peter here in a lot of detail. Peter is arrested and imprisoned and then released from prison, which is uh, not exactly a death and resurrection, but is resembles a death and resurrection. Uh, then he returns to the disciples who have been praying for him. He makes an appearance and announces the good news that he's now been freed. And then at the end of that episode, he goes off to a different place. That's in verse 17. He departed and went to another place. So at, at every point, he's uh, following, the, following the life of Jesus. Uh, the other thing that's happening here overall is the we're moving to a different phase of the church's conflicts and persecution. We've, we've in Jerusalem, the opposition primarily came from the Jewish leaders and the temple authorities, but now Herod makes an appearance, and we have instead of uh, religious authorities, we have Herod the king, who is executing and imprisoning the apostles. Uh, and Herod uh, comes up at the end of the chapter two and and receives his just desserts for his persecution of the apostles. So uh, that's another. That's another theme that is introduced here in this chapter is the, the expansion of the persecution from 
uh, just the uh, religious leaders to the civil leaders. Picking up, Peter, on the way you've spelled out, the way the, um, uh, the church uh, mirrors and, and lives out, really, the life of Christ, it strikes me as significant the way uh, those echo center around perhaps Jesus' death and resurrection. So Stephen, very similar to the death of Jesus. And then we've noted that Philip's um, uh, speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch is very um, Emmaus. Like um, when Peter appears here in um, Acts 12 after he's released, um, he's initially um, has a female witness who is not believed, which has got a lot of resonance with John 20. And so it seems to me that there is a, a sort of um, a historical playing out of the way in which the church is united um, in Christ's death and united in his resurrection. And um, it seems significant that um, it's not just mirroring random aspects of Christ's life, but it's telling out um, a, a key theological truth. Beyond the mirroring, there's also a juxtaposition of two key characters here in Peter and Herod. Both of them are struck by an angel within the chapter. Peter is struck in order to be raised up and Herod is struck in order to be struck down. And if we remember from chapter 10, Peter was initially worshipped as if um, some divine being when he appeared to or came to Cornelius and he prevented him. Um, and then you have with Peter, there was a movement from Caesarea to Judea. And here you have a movement of Herod from Judea to Caesarea. And it seems that we're supposed to hold these two characters alongside each other and see in the one um, the reversal of what's taking place in the other. One is brought down, the other is raised up. This is one of the great reversal stories of Scripture, where the righteous are raised up and the um, evil tyrants are brought low. Yeah, I think that juxtaposition also fits with, a, with an Exodus typology that, uh, and Passover typology that's going on here. Uh, there are explicit references to the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verse 3. Uh, Passover is mentioned in verse 4. Uh, that, of course, fits with the parallel with Jesus, but also it's uh, uh, referring back to the the event of the Exodus. The angel of the Lord appears and leads Peter out of the prison, uh, but that same angel of the Lord comes and strikes uh, Herod, who uh, in that you know in that context is uh, playing the role of a Pharaoh figure. So you have you have that overlay of that typology that's an aspect of that that duality you were talking about, Alistair. Yeah. That's also part of a, a bigger um, literary device, I guess, that Luke seems to, to favour and to use very often. So in chapter 8, for instance, we have Philip and Simon paired together. Both are said to have power and to do great things and to astonish the crowds. And then when Peter arrives, he obviously his presence draws the distinction between the, the faithfulness of those two individuals. Um Peter, not not the Apostle Peter, but our, our Peter here, um, Peter drew out the parallels between Saul and Ananias in chapter 9, the way they both have a, a vision of Christ and are led to the same house, and they're called to see one another in um, a different light. There is kind of a conversion in each case, and, and we'll, we'll see a similar thing with Paul and um, Elymas, the, the sorcerer, in the next chapter. And, and this seems to be something that Luke's, Luke likes to do, to have these couplets of people and, and we're to um, notice the similarities and the contrasts between them. 
There's a couple ways in which this uh, pushes forward the narrative to of Acts. So in um, chapter seven, well, in the first uh, first seven chapters of Acts, we're basically in Jerusalem, and it was it was the priests and the rulers of Jerusalem who were corrupt and ended up killing Stephen. Um, and now from Acts seven to twelve, we've pretty much been in the land. And it turns out now that it's the king, Herod, who is depraved and who kills Peter. Um, and it's an escalation of, of apostasy, if you will, or, or an extension from Jerusalem now all the way into the land. And if Jerusalem was in Egypt, now the whole land is in Egypt and there's going to have to be an exodus. Um, and afterwards, uh, in chapter 12, of course, er, 13, I mean, I'm sorry, um, we move to Barnabas and then out into, into the world. There's a number of also fascinating details here. In chapter 12, everything that happens, happens uh, because of God's direct actions and through his angels. This is maybe something of uh, a final act of angelic uh, oversight in Israel, bringing judgment on the land. It's the angel who um, rescues Peter. It's the angel who kills Herod. And after that, we don't read a whole lot about angels in the rest of the book of Acts. So there's this, uh, this progression in the narrative, I think, uh, so far in the book of Acts. One of the things about angels is the the one part of the story that you don't have an angel appear. You have somebody who's considered to be an angel, who's Peter. An angel comes and rescues Peter. Then Peter goes to the house of Mary where uh, they're praying. And uh, the first thought is it's Peter's angel. And then an angel appears and strikes Herod. So in each of the three main episodes of the story, you have an, an angel or an angel-like character. So that Peter, and this fits with the whole narrative of the gospel story is that Peter and the apostles are replacing the angels, um, right? As as rulers, as governors, as teachers, as messengers of God, right? Yeah, and I think that that's even in the in the way that Peter's appearance is described. When Rhoda meets him at the door, she goes back and says, tells him Peter's at the door, and they say, "You're mad." It is his angel. That's in verse fifteen. Whose angel mm -hmm. is that? <laughs> is Peter's spirit considered his angel, or does he have a guardian angel that might make an appearance? Or is this, as some some commentators suggest, is this a reference to his that is the Lord's angel making an appearance? So you have that that play. It's it's an ambiguous identification. Whose angel is it? Uh, and um, it it would link Peter, as you said, Jeff, with uh, with the angel. You have the, the 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 apostles taking over that angelic task. One peculiar feature of this chapter is the way in which it's bracketed by the journey of Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem on the end of chapter 11 and then the end of chapter 12, and yet you hear nothing of what they do there. In Galatians chapter 2, we do have a record of what happened here, and it's a very significant event. It's the meeting of Paul with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the key pillars, and their recognition and um, affirmation of his um, Gentile ministry. It seems strange that, in some ways, that 
Luke doesn't record that, but we do have it recorded elsewhere in Scripture. What we do have, though, is this larger transition from um, a ministry focused upon Peter and the Jerusalem church to this larger ministry to the Gentiles. And the way it is bracketed is a way in which Luke um, reveals or expresses that movement in a literary form. This is something that will um, represent the great transition in the story as it's gradually moving out and then finally ending up in Rome. Yeah, it's interesting how the how those are how those are the different um, missions are kind of interwoven with each other, interleaved with each other almost. Paul's conversion, and then you go back to Peter. In the end of the story of Peter and Cornelius, you have this reference to Antioch, which is the base of the Gentile mission. Then you're back to Peter, but that chapter ends with again a transition into the Gentile mission. So the two are interwoven rather than having this stark contrast or stark stark uh, division between the two. This uh, comment about mission is interesting, maybe uh, application here. Paul and Barnabas in Jerusalem working on establishing these distribution channels for aid that would come to Jerusalem during the famine, uh, as Elser noticed, bracketed this story. Um, and so the church goes about its business of uh, ministry, service, love, care for people, um, while at the same time praying for God to bring what we might call political judgment. And then um, he does, uh, and he does it. Uh, the church doesn't have an instrumentality here in bringing judgment on Herod. God directly acts both to rescue Peter and also to judge Herod. Um, I think there's probably some, I think there's surely some application there for the mission of the church in a culture that is, um, oh, under God's judgment or ought to be under God's judgment. How do we behave? How do we live? How do we minister? I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, several of the, the, the details here. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, um, Herod executes James, the brother of John, and then arrests Peter and doesn't just put him into prison, but we have this reference in verse four to four quaternions of soldiers. That is four by four, 16 soldiers to guard him. Why are we given that detail? And then the night when Peter is rescued, he's sleeping between two soldiers you know, I have this image of Peter kind of snuggled up with the soldiers, but I, I don't imagine that's exactly what's being described. And then when the angel appears to him and his chains fall off, uh, he gives him these instructions about dressing himself, gird yourself, put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Those all seem tantalizingly precise, but I, um, I haven't been able to get a good handle on what the, what the picture is here. Any thoughts? I think that one thing that the uh, one purpose that the um, dressing, the putting on your clothes and cloak and, and so forth, that instruction to Peter might do. I mean, a there are resonances with the uh, um, Passover and, and sort of gird yourself type things, but also there is the contrast with um, Herod, which Alistair alluded to earlier. So um, Peter is told to um, put on clothes, and, and that's associated with his escape. Um, but then in verse 21 of this um, chapter, Herod um, puts his royal robes on. And, and this seems to lead to his downfall in Josephus's um, 
recollection of what seemed to be very similar events. Um, uh, a lot of stress is put on the fact that uh, Herod dons royal robes and um, uh, accepts worship in them. Mm-hmm. I'm inclined to think at least that there are these allusions to what happens, as you mentioned earlier, in Jesus' arrest and suffering and death. I mean, there's all these little uh, points that, um, you know, take us back to uh, when Pilate, um, it, it pleased the Jews to arrest Jesus and it pleases Herod. It pleases the Jews for Herod to arrest Peter. And he, then he delivers him over to the soldiers and it all happens on Passover. And then he plans to do what Pilate planned to do with Jesus. Um, uh, then there's an angel and then their light shines and then they're sleeping. Um, and then Peter, where is it? Verse eight passes through the guards and the gates like Jesus passes through the stone roll over the tomb. And, and uh, Jesus uh, gets a new, a new uh, set of clothes, so to speak. And Peter uh, gets a set of clothes and then he appears to the women and then they run and tell others. You already mentioned some of this, but um, I, I don't know what to do about the four, four uh, <laughs> squads, but <laughs> there's so much of this uh, links back up with the Jesus. I got to think there's some link there. One thing I think that accounts like this can do is encourage us to go back to the earlier stories and reread them in terms of the themes that we encounter here. Mm. So when we're reading the story of the um, the death and the burial and resurrection, we often can underplay the theme of the tomb as a prison, um, that Christ is guarded by soldiers, that it's blocked up, um, and that even beyond that, Christ is, as it were, held in the prison of um, Hades. And the fact that he breaks open the prison and delivers its um, captives is a theme that, having read this story, we'll be more apt to see than we would have been beforehand. Yeah, I, I was going to make a similar point. I mean, it may be that the mention of four here um, is reminiscent of the fact that Jesus is guarded by four soldiers. So in John um, 19, for instance, they divide Jesus' um, garments and so forth into four parts, and then it says one for each soldier. So you, you can infer there that um, there are four soldiers around Jesus at, at that point. And there are also, in fact, four um, of his followers um, with him in, in that there is um, his mother or, or four females, his mother, his mother's sister, um, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, I, th- I think. So um there was a sort of four and four associated there. And we've noted it before, haven't we? Just as the um, the grave cannot hold Jesus in the preaching at the start of the book of Acts, death cannot hold him, it throughout prison cannot hold the disciples or, or the word of God. There's that continual attempt mm. to bind the word of God through prison and it, it doesn't work. The numbers, uh, four squads of soldiers, four four man squads of soldiers lying between two soldiers. Uh, I think all, all that you were saying is uh, is is right, but it, it also occurs to me that there might be some kind of ironic allusion to structures that had to do with the with the uh, sanctuaries, the the four by four, the guardians of the sanctuary, the the four points of the compass, the 
between two soldiers suggests a kind of a flanking Jesus crucified between two malefactors, but also Jesus' tomb guarded by two angels after his resurrection, which forms a kind of arc scene inside the tomb. And just the the numbers and the pictures made me uh, think that there might be some sanctuary illusion as the as the tomb of Jesus becomes the place of God's presence and God's deliverance. So the the prison uh, where Peter is set becomes a, a place of epiphany where the angel of the Lord shows up and light shines into that dark prison. I, I, meant, I alluded to this already, but there's a uh, there's a, a, a striking similarity between the angel's appearance to Peter in the prison and then Peter's appearance to the assembled disciples who are praying for him. In both cases, there's this sudden appearance. In both cases, there's confusion about what's actually going on. Peter thinks he's seeing a vision until he gets out into the city. Uh, in both cases, there's an angel involved, the angel of the Lord in the one hand and Peter himself in the other. There's a gate referenced. Uh, Peter gets to the gate and then he's back out into Jerusalem, into the streets of Jerusalem. Then he realizes it's not a dream. And then he comes to the door and is left at the door of the house before he can enter into the house. And then both of them climax with a kind of realization of the Lord's uh, power and uh, deliverance. Peter realizes that he's been, verse 11, uh, he learns the lesson when he comes to himself. I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were hoping for Peter to be executed, but he's been delivered from that whole plot. Uh, and then, he, so he has this revelation and then he tells, uh, reports to the, to the assembled disciples in verse 17 about the revelation. So both of them end with this report about the Lord's deliverance. So the two sections of that story kind of match up uh, with, again, Peter playing the role of the angel, uh, bringing an announcement and a message to the disciples. Uh, hearing you, Peter, and looking at the story again, there's almost something playful about the story. Mm-hmm. Um it's not just a stern, hard kind of hear the facts. Uh, maybe even a little bit of mocking going on here. If we think about the connection with the Exodus and the Passover, of course, the Passover was a humiliation for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites, it was a feast. Um, and here, um, the righteous, there's this dreamlike, almost happy-go-lucky quality to the whole thing, you know, with Peter and Rhoda and and everything. It's like, you know, when you're in God's hands and you're secure, you're not too worried about all the details of what happens and you bring life, uh, you bring deliverance, you bring rescue. But for Herod and the Jews, um, there's no peace. It's death and death all around. And Herod is killing James and then killing the the sentries that uh, were supposed to be guarding James, and then Herod himself dies in this cruel, kind of awful way. But for the church, uh, they're just, they're moving on from from life to life, from glory to glory. Mm-hmm. I think one of, the, one of the other striking things about the rescue is the destination. The angel leads him out of the prison. You think, okay, good time to leave Jerusalem. <laughs> But the, the destination is is back to Jerusalem. The angel leaves him deposited in the streets of the city where he was arrested and where everybody's trying to kill him. Uh, and then ultimately, of course, he goes to uh, back to the disciples. This is not a flight from the mission that he's given in Jerusalem, but it's a return to that mission. Uh, and uh, 
So I think that's, um, there's a, this isn't a universal of the stories of rescue in Acts. Sometimes Paul is rescued and he gets away. He just flees the city where he is. Uh, but in this case, at least Peter is not called to flight, but, uh, and I think that's, a that's something to keep in mind that, uh, the fact that we're, uh, you know, Christians are persecuted all over the world. Uh, the fact that they're rescued from various positions of danger is not a signal that they should just leave the post. Sometimes the Lord calls you back to the place where you were in danger uh, originally to keep ministering there. I mean, Peter, that's true, but he does leave in verse 19. Yeah, true. He ends up leaving Judea. Good point. Jeff, you mentioned the playful playful nature of some of the things going on here, and it, it strikes me as very interesting that Peter gets out of the prison um, with no trouble at all. The gate, it says, opened of its own accord in <laughs> verse 10, but then finds it very difficult to get access to the church where they've been praying for him, which seems rather um, playful, but then kind of mirrors Paul's um, uh, experiences in some ways in that he is saved when the Lord appears to him, um, but then it takes him a lot of time to get access to the church because they're, they're not convinced of the um, sincerity, I guess, of his conversion. And one of the things all that brings out to me is, is just the fact that, um, I mean, very clearly the um, the success of the church here, if you like this, um, is not dependent on the quality of their faith. They are all amazed and surprised at the fact that their prayers have been answered. And um, w- what is driving all the events here is, is the sovereign hand of God. And there's e- even this interesting um, parallel between chapters 12 and 13 where Herod um, says in verse 1, lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. And then in verse 3 of chapter 13, um, they lay hands on um, Barnabas and Saul and send them out. And so there is almost this way in which Herod is, is he's persecuting, but he's brought into the um, uh, plans of God, not deliberately, but that, that's the purpose with which God will use it. Hmm. He's ordaining people to martyrdom. Right, right. Reading passages like this, it's also worth reflecting upon the paths that are crossing. Saul and Barnabas are going down into Jerusalem, and there they're going to meet the um, pillars of the church. You have this connection with John Mark and the house where they're meeting. And then later on, you find out in Colossians 4.10 that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin, and then Mark accompanies them. Mark has a partic- seems to have a particular association with Peter, He's presumably the one who writes the second gospel. And so gradually you begin to realize just how closely and tightly networked the early church is. And so the idea that there are these very distinct communities doing their own thing just does not hold water. Paul alone has at different periods during his ministry as companions, um, two gospel writers, at least in Luke and Mark. Well, that leads me to ask a question to you guys. And have you all seen the episode that episodes The Chosen? It's a new series on the life of Jesus, and it's only available. Oh, I can't, I don't remember all the details. I, I'm not hearing any yays. From no, you. no, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. No. Interesting. One one of the things that comes out of this is just how interconnected. And I think they did a good job with this. The disciples were their friends. Their now there's some things that they get wrong. But um, I'd recommend you watch it. It's very well done. I generally do not like these uh, fictionalized accounts of 
the, the gospel stories, but this one is quite well done. I wanted to raise a couple of questions about the last part of the chapter two. We turn our focus to Herod and we see that the Lord intervenes to strike him down. He struck Peter awake, as Alistair said, he strikes Herod to death. But uh, I, I don't understand the circumstances uh, of his council meeting. In, in verse 20, he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. With one accord, they came to him. Are they summoned there because he's angry with them? And do they win over Blastus, the king's chamberlain? And what's it have to do that their country is fed by Herod's country? Does anybody anybody sort through that, figure out uh, what the circumstances are and why they're, why Luke includes these details about uh, the, the setting of Herod's, uh, of Herod's death? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is theologically, and even in terms of the history of the Jews, of course, Israel is a source of bread and food for, I mean, you're, you're thinking back to Solomon with Tyre and Sidon and him providing them grain and food for the materials they gave him for the temple. Um, and so this is kind of is a picture of the relationship of Israel to the nations. They're supposed to be providing them life and, of course, instruction, wisdom. Uh, and maybe what we're reading here is this is this is how this is a, a vignette of how it's breaking down. It's all breaking down. Israel is not really fulfilling their calling. They're not true to their vo- vocation that God gave them. And this is just a picture of that. I suspect there's also a juxtaposition with the fact that Saul and Barnabas are providing famine relief and here in um, Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon, there is a breakdown of relationship because of the non-provision of food. Whereas with the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, there is this new relationship developing where the Gentiles are giving famine relief. Yeah. The other dimension of the Solomon reference, uh, Jeff, uh, might be the you have peaceful relationships between Hiram and Solomon during the building of the temple. But that's that sours later on in the uh, Solomon narrative, and you, and uh, Solomon gives cities to Hiram, and Hiram is not satisfied with them, and you have this kind of uh, this discordant note between the king of the king of Tyre and uh, the and uh, Solomon. So there, yeah, it might be a continuation of that. So you're seeing that the very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon means that he's making war on them, uh, and they want peace because they're uh, the food that comes from Israel has been interrupted by conflict with Tyre between Tyre and Sidon and Israel. Is that is that the situation that you're surmising from that from verse twenty? Apparently, yeah. Okay. Apparently, any thoughts on the worms? <laughs> I think I think one of the things going on here is just portraying the um, Herod's fall as one of these um, great kings who raises themselves up and then are brought brought very low. I mean, we have various parallels with um, uh, Belshazzar, for instance, who has this feast and exalts himself, and it, it talks about these robes, which in the end get passed on um, to Daniel um, in, in that case. And he then, on a special day when he calls this banquet, is then um, uh, brought low. And when Isaiah refers to that in Isaiah 14 and talks about the fall of 
um, the mighty one. It, it says, you know, your, your greatness is brought down to Sheol and, and worms are made the, the, the covers for your bed. It's, it's a sort of imagery there. And so, um, he, he strikes me as Herod seems to be framed in, in that kind of light. Hmm. Yeah. We, we've noted this before, but just to, just to highlight this at the end, um, this is a situation of, in, again, intensifying opposition to the church. You have another execution of James. Peter is imprisoned and in danger, uh, but the Lord is still governing his church and still preserving it. And verse 24 is a refrain that's recurred a couple of times already in Acts. Uh, in spite of all this, in spite of all opposition, the word of God is unchained and is not going to be held back. Uh, prisons don't stop it. The opposition of Herod's doesn't stop it. The sword doesn't stop it. The word of the Lord continues to grow and to be multiplied, uh, sometimes through the direct intervention of the angels, sometimes through uh, the witness of the disciples, sometimes through the suffering of the disciples. But through all the apparent turmoil and mayhem, uh, the Lord is extending his kingdom and his word is growing and multiplying. Uh, there's a there's a great emphasis on the on the uh, unstoppable power of the word of God running through the book of Acts. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.